I left the house this morning and I was like, this is the kind of weather that I would want every single day. Exactly this weather. So at Hong least for Kong, that moment in yeah, time, the, it was perfect. The temperature in Hong Kong has been pretty good as of late. Yeah. It's right between seasons. I was wondering if it had anything to do with the pandemic. Just like casually in terms of personal usage of electronics or something i don't know i was just wondering like it feels nicer than it usually is in fall. when all the factories in china were shut down the skies seemed to be a lot more blue and more frequent yeah yeah so i was wondering if it had something to do with that but who knows um, random hypothesizing i mean if china's economic numbers are to be believed they're up and running so so shouldn't be affecting us factories are going Full steam. How was your right. weekend? It was good. It was busy. Very busy, busy with work things? Busy with social things? Uh, but, well, social things. Had a really big game Sunday, and then we lost 3-0. Oh, sorry. Yeah. It's okay. It happens. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. That was very Avery Truffleman-esque. Was it? Yes. I was focusing on sounding soothing to the ears. Yes. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners. But really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash Macon. Let's get into it. Do you take it more personally as a goalie? Well, so I had this thing. The score of the last person to see the ball is you. Correct. Actually, it's funny because it relates back to something work-related because I was cutting this interview. I was like reviewing some of the audio for this project we were doing. And one of the talents was speaking about his experiences playing sports and how he basically needed to be invested himself because when he made the jump into the creative world like his friends didn't believe him his parents didn't believe him so he really had to just believe in himself and not to say that this is exactly where i'm going with this but i think players on the field will always look at it differently than a goalkeeper Mm. and for me if it's a big game and i can't effectuate the outcome in the most minute ways or in really big ways then it's considered like a failure on my part is that how you feel about sunday well, yeah, I mean, yeah, we lost 3-0. We didn't score, but there's still pivotal moments where, let's say you're losing, the, let's say the first goal of the game, like, I look and I can be like, oh, I should have done this better. Yeah. And I didn't do it. And it's neither here nor there. I mean, you're, like, playing at a decent level as an amateur, though, and you don't have the chance to, like, train as much and fix things, right? It's more like you have to kind of be a little bit more on the fly. Yeah. But I know that I'd be much more confident if, this game had happened maybe in eight weeks time then i think a lot of those uh timing issues or just being rusty from having a really short preseason because of covid right would have changed because right. it basically is like first for second place in the second game of the season uh, and obviously we played in a very different type of league where it's not like the premier league where you have you know 38 games in a season yeah right it's just very different well good luck on the next one
apply those learnings. Yes. Do you want to go first or me? Doesn't matter. I can go first. Sure. All right. Let's do it. So my topic this week is should synthetic clothing be sold with a warning? In the story by Vogue Business, they highlighted the challenges around synthetic clothing. And what they meant was the use and washing of synthetics often release harmful microplastics. And they had a graph. Obviously, you can't see it. This is a podcast. There's a graph that shows that in a six kilogram wash cycle, acrylic releases 650,000 fibers. Polyester releases 450,000 fibers and a poly cotton blend releases under 200,000 fibers. That's but still wild. quite a bit. Yeah. So you and, mean, sorry, for clarity, like in the washing machine. Correct. Like in a personal at home washing machine. That's what happens. Yes. I think the six kilogram wash cycle is more to designate if you had six kilograms of polyester clothing, they designate microplastic as something that's five millimeters long and barely visible to the naked eye. So, I mean, if you had a microscope, I'm sure you'd be, be able to see it quite clearly. Uh, so what happens is, is that when you wash these fabrics, the microplastics make their way into our ecosystem and get consumed by marine life, uh, also makes their way into our food system. So you and I for sure have microplastics in our Which, system. Yeah, mix it to us. Yeah, if you're eating fish, shellfish, etc. And according to the International Union of Conservation of Nature, Synthetic clothing accounts for 60% of the global apparel industry's annual fiber consumption and 35% of the microplastics in the ocean. These are such scary numbers. Yeah. And essentially what this means is that over the course of the creation of fashion, through cutting, dyeing, washing, Mm. you're releasing microplastics. Uh, And there's this quote from the article by Charlotte Turner the head of sustainable fashion and textiles at the fashion advisory EcoAge, And she says that brands should be educating customers on the lowest impact ways to care for their products. Okay. And then also I, I want to actually read a bunch of quotes that I think are relevant. Sure. And I also want to preface Francois Sujet, who is the lead of the Ellen MacArthur foundations make fashion circular initiative suggests that as a consumer, there's only so much you can do. You can't rely on you and I who are go- out there buying clothing to make the biggest change and difference and that the change actually has to happen higher up. Okay. So this could be through the manufacturers. It could be through legislation. She doesn't directly say that, but that's what I think Just she means by upstream. Further up than the consumer. Correct. Got it. Assuming the consumer is sort of the end yeah. user, right? And then in addition to that, there's also legislation that's starting to be built in. In France, for example, they've proposed that New washing machines by 2025 need to have a microfiber filter or a microplastic filter built in. And there's another quote as well from Elisa Foster of Patagonia who says that if all these new washing machines had filters, there wouldn't be any need for any ancillary products to help minimize the release of these microplastics. On that subject, the Vogue Business article also talks about this German company called Guppy Friend. I almost bought one. I oh, I actually it. think it would be really interesting. I almost bought one. I I'm was, looking at it now and it looks super interesting. I found and basically, out about it from Noah. what it is is that it's a mesh bag. You can place your synthetic garments inside it, zip it up, put it in the washing machine, and it stops microfibers from getting out of that bag. So it's like a it's like a filter uh, when your washing machine doesn't have one. And then what do you do with the remnants, though, I mean, I'm, this is me just kind of being oh, snarky yeah. about it, but like, you, are you going to recycle it or whatever? Like, it's just I basically contributing microplastics still back into the environment, right? 
Yeah, I mean, it's not perfect. Yeah. It's a very like stopgap yeah. solution. Yeah. But Guppy Friend and also these other educational campaigns give instructions to consumers as to other things you could do when you're washing, which I feel like these are practices you can adopt, like wash similar textures together to minimize friction, air dry garments instead of using the like dryer, which a lot of people in Hong Kong do. Mm. I mean, I know it's not perfect. I'm like saying this and I know it's not like a perfect solution, but these are like small habits you could change, which maybe links back to what you were saying about like educating consumers. Yeah. And I think ultimately for me, the reason why this was interesting was you wanted to frame this conversation around how do you challenge and push consumer behavioral change, right? Because the way I broke it down, there's three different pieces of this puzzle. There might be more, but this is what occurred to me. There's number one, the consumer, the end user. There's the brands who are kind of in the middle. And the third one, and arguably the one that people like the least is like government intervention through legislation. What do you mean by people like the least? I think that people don't like their government meddling in things as much. I guess maybe it's it's dependent. I mean, it really depends on your stance on government and what they're meddling on. I'm of the opinion that for stuff like this, it needs legislation Correct. to guess, make it hey, happen. You know, this is, like I don't think consumer, I don't think consumer power can go as far as legislation. Correct. I agree too. Right. Yeah, but I think generally speaking, there. I mean, this is this is not for me to push this into some sort of philosophical debate. It's more about people given the opportunity to probably want the chance to choose. A good way of looking at this is: can we frame this up in the same way as a plastic bag ban? Yeah. Right. Because what I would like to see, if this is as big of an issue as it's being reported as, and I'm not, I'm not denying it. I'm yeah. just saying if this is a big issue. Shouldn't there be a whole list of things that we should approach? And it's like, I don't even think that the guppy guppy friend. I don't think the guppy friend is the solution. Right. Right. I actually think the solution is like looking into the taxation of materials or fabrics that do release microfibers and incentivizing people to not use this. Or if you were going to be, if you're going to be really heavy handed, like if your thing if your material or fabric you use is going to, you know, release microplastics, then ban it. Let's yeah. say that was like on the far end. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, it's so interesting that you bring up the plastic bag ban because in Hong Kong, you pay, is it 50 cents or $1? 50 cents is correct. You pay 50 cents, which is very nominal. Okay. It's like 7 cents US, but it works. So many people choose to not pay 50 cents for a plastic bag. Yep. And so ever since that led, law happened people all over hong kong bring their own bags around yeah that's what i'm saying that's what but it's crazy right but i think the issue with microfibers is that correct me if i'm wrong a lot of times synthetic material apparel is cheaper than the non-synthetic yeah i think it's material cheaper there's probably some sort of thing there but i'm I'm saying like at scale but on that note if h&m has no incentive to change their usage of acrylic or polyester then they'll continue using it. Yeah. Right. But if they're forced to change and revisit what materials they use, then obviously that changes. Yeah. I mean, the question is who are they being forced by? Yes. Is it consumer? Well, I mean, I think we both agree it has to be a mix of things, oh, yeah, but it's, it's all, like it's all three. It's a mix of and more. consumer being educated and making choices that are not acrylic and other synthetic 
materials. And then also it doesn't have to be legislation in the form of a ban. It can also be like you said, like legislation in the form of like a Taxation. reward. Yeah. yeah. Like you can financially incentivize companies to not use certain materials. I wish I had a little bit more visibility, but it's kind of like a, a carbon tax, right? Cause it could oh, also yeah. be like a, a, a plastic tax. But you need to make enough that, I mean, I don't even know. It's, I feel like we're wading into really complicated territory, but there are definitely will be companies that are like, we're just going to pay the tax. Yeah. Cause it's, it's worth I mean, it it's to us to just pay the tax. If it's financially beneficial for them, then yes, yeah. that makes sense. But I'm trying to think of other options where consumer behavior has positively been impacted by legislation. I think soda taxes, like, there's, uh, there's taxes on on soft drinks mm -hmm, like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. soda with sugar mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know i mean that's both from a, a health perspective right you know as well as just like reducing in the longer term like the instances of people needing to go to the hospital yeah, for example sure consumer behavior by legislature i mean if you talk about vehicles the safety belt yeah safety belt you could, I guess, when you said, like, you know, people like to have a choice, you could say people want a choice to, like, wear or not wear their safety belt, but that's a law that you yeah. have to wear your safety belt. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So I think that's actually really interesting. And you also look at the growth of, so, for example, in Hong Kong, there's a ton of Teslas or there were a ton of, you know, new Teslas on the road. And I'm not saying it's because people wanted to do something good for the environment. It's because that there was no taxation on there was a lighter tax yeah on there was, no, there was like no tax i think for a period of time they changed it oh, eventually yeah, yeah. but yeah yeah like if you bought an ev mm -hmm. you would have a significantly reduced uh tax yeah. rate on it which yeah. meant that hey you know what tesla's not a bad car to begin with so why not i why not get this instead of getting an equivalent like mercedes in the same price point i was gonna say that it's interesting the Vogue title is should synthetic clothing be sold with a warning because I think that talks about education. And I think one of the challenges right now around this issue in terms of microfibers, microplastics, synthetic materials is that there's not the amount of knowledge that's, you know, widespread and common as like safety belts, which is everyone Very from four too. years old up yeah. like knows about a safety belt. But microplastics still feels like new information. Dude, yeah, like I don't I don't taste microplastics when i eat fish yeah but it's probably going to impact me like there's yeah exactly exactly like testosterone levels estrogen i'm sure there's a lot of things that impact us that are invisible currently yeah and it's always so hard to sell something that is so maybe actually from the start what needs to happen which this could be governmental or not is things like psas or educational campaigns of some sort yeah because like even for me, even though I'm aware of the problem, reading those numbers was still like, I did not know the extent of this problem. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's something that's definitely worth like revisiting. And I don't know if my interest is in like in part the this sort of intersection of trends and consumer behavior, mm -hmm. right? But it's how do you how do things spin off? Like that's what I'm always interested in is Let's say hypothetically, if the world of fibers undergoes this huge change where the, the largest market like the U.S. bans the use of 
synthetics. I mean, or the, as we currently know it, and they force people to develop better, more modern synthetics that don't shed. Mm. Let's say hypothetically that's that's yeah. what happens. And what happens in that period of that lull when people are trying to develop economic, more eco-friendly synthetics. Oh, like wool picks up, cotton picks up, like just seeing everything spiral out of that. I'm still thinking about the plastic bag ban, honestly, because it's interesting how how things what you're talking about, like a um like the meeting points of all of these factors led to such a big shift in consumer behavior. Yeah. But on top of that, you also think that even though people bring bags now, they probably also opened up a new area of consumption, which is buying reusable bags. Sure. Right? It's all these things. You're looking at your uh your shirt right now. hundred percent cotton. Yeah. Well, I'm, I feel like I, I feel I feel dumb right? because I'm like I'm not actually certain right now how many articles of my own clothing are synthetic or not, and maybe that's a starting point. I know that's a very weak starting point, yeah. but maybe just the awareness of like what in your closet is synthetic and not, and then going from there and trying it almost feels like a challenge in a way. Like, can you shift? the ratio of your synthetic to non-synthetic clothing. One thing I also think is interesting is looking at the role that the community plays or society plays in keeping people in check, right? You see it more in collectivist societies, but what does it mean when you are subtly pressured into not doing something because of what the general norms are? So for example, you could use the plastic band you could use the plastic bag ban as an example where people are now using reusable bags and that itself presents you as a certain type of quote unquote upstanding individual. So I don't know how you take that and apply it to clothing. It's hard, but I, I do think there's something interesting in the role that societies can self-govern through norms and expectations i mean not to make this political which it shouldn't be it should be about health but face mask is a good example of that mm -hmm. yep which I we've agree. talked about before on this podcast about how hong kong before it was a law everyone was already wearing a face mask they didn't need it to be a law yeah so I, I don't know how that works for this specific case since it's not immediately apparent what clothing is made out of and how you're washing it from like an external perspective right yeah. and that's how those are the things that are easiest to self-govern is when it's like immediately like externally apparent yeah. what you're doing yeah. like smoking for example as well so so i don't we'll see maybe there is some creative way to make that happen for oh yeah that we definitely forgot to bring up smoking yeah like taxation and smoking is huge i was reading some article or it was a Reddit thread on smoking in I was Australia or something. And the cost between, you know, South Africa versus Australia was massive. They like had a photo of this is the amount of groceries you can buy re relative to the cost of a pack of cigarettes. And it was like a ton of food. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, smoking is one of those things that a lot of different factors agreed on. Like we're going to discourage people from smoking in like 10 different ways and then it's going to work. You ready to move on? Yep. Okay. My subject this week is about TikTok, but bigger than that, it's about 
algorithms and the way the creation of content adapts to the existing algorithms. This is a super interesting interview. I'm so glad you included this link. So the interview that I'm talking about is with Ricky Desktop, who is the most viral beat maker on TikTok. And this is from The Verge, written by Jacob Kastronakis. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about Ricky Desktop because this was a new person for me. And I feel like for a chunk of our listeners as well, like this is going to be an introduction. Which is interesting, too, because to be honest, traditionally, it's the performer who you give most of the attention Credit to. to. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Now yeah. it's almost as though the beat and they've is been, the background. Yes. And they've elevated. They've been elevated to an a new tier well don't call it a tier but in the world of tiktok they are actually super important they are right? super important but they're not as important as the dancer correct but i think that they are now at a certain level where they could be seen as literally equivalent maybe to the performer i still don't know if it's equivalent because there will be a lot of people who know ricky desktop's beats but might not know ricky desktop the person or care about Ricky yeah. Desktop, the person, but also that's like part of this guy's plan. Like he wasn't trying to be a star in the same like way that dancers are visible, like Charlie D'Amelio, right? So a little bit more about Ricky Desktop. He's made more than 20 beats intentionally for TikTok. More than six of those have gone on to be hugely viral. He was a very good success rate. For people who are on TikTok, I'm gonna say the n names of these beats. I did not know them before this, did you? Mm, don't think so. Okay, so they're the chicken wing beat, the dice beat, the boat beat, and the banjo beat are... So simple. <laughs> four, I'm going to get into that. Four of his most viral and popular to, beats. To be fair, we haven't had TikTok in Hong Kong for a few months because of the ban. So. Well, even before we didn't have TikTok, I wasn't on TikTok. Eugene dabbled briefly in TikTok in terms of looking at it. Did you ever post anything? For fun, just to like mess yeah. around. So Eugene and I are not the experts here. This was super interesting to us, or to me at least. And when we say viral for Ricky Desktop, it really is. He's this 22-year-old recent college graduate. He's this multi-instrumentalist musician. He's got 1.5 million monthly listeners now. More than 20 million TikTok videos have been made to his beats. Some of those with millions of views on their own. So what's super interesting, it, and you alluded to when you said like, these are so simple, is how scientifically he goes into making a viral beat. For example, he, he really talks about this at, in detail with the Verge article. So I'm going to go on a little bit like that. He says, you need concrete sonic elements that dancers can visually engage with on a person by person basis. So, for example, when he was making his dice beat, guess what's in it? There is a sound of rolling a dice. And when he made it, he was thinking, I'm going to make sounds in this where people can do the action. And it's just a super simple thing where there's a flute sound. People will pretend to play the flute. There's the word chicken wing. People are going to pretend to be a chicken. And <laughs> I mean, it sounds obvious, but he's like perfected that science, right? He also claims to be the pioneer. I mean, I wouldn't know better whether he is or not. He claims to be the pioneer of these two sound effects or the usage of these two sound effects. One of them is adding three bass hits together so that dancers can do a repeated action with those three 
hits. So instead of just like one bass drop, there's three beats. And then he also does a sound where it's like a water drop before the bass hit. And he also talks about this really scientifically. He says it's like ASMR. And also in that little like bloop water drop sound, they can hit the air or hit the cheek. So he's literally just thinking about the visual effect when he makes these songs. And then he has this like action plan too, where he, he doesn't care if his own profile blows up. He posts videos asking people to make it viral. And he says like giving people like a call to action makes it happen. Yeah. And I just like was really impressed with, he has like a whole game plan. And at the end of the interview, he says like, he doesn't actually care about being viral on TikTok. Like his entire strategy of going and making TikTok beats was so that rappers and artists would reach out to him for custom beats. And then he could establish relationships with them and become basically what's happened. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. It's happened for him for real. And he's, you know, he, he already envisions himself as a producer for these big artists. And then eventually he wants to make his own music and projects, which I thought was super interesting because he realized I'm not going to be able to be successful from the start by releasing my own music and like my own vocals. So I'm just going to get visibility by doing this other work that I don't really care about, but is going to get me. A foot in the door. Yeah, a foot in the door, this network, this attention. And I, I respect that. He, he, he knows how to play the game perfectly. He's engineering a different way into building a career. Yeah. 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 So he didn't, I guess the tradi- traditional way, or I guess something we talk about is like, make the thing you love and put it out there. And then people who love what you make will come and find you. Yeah. But that's not his. He's, he basically decided, yeah. you know, that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. We'll also have to just see what the appetite is for his music when he does release it. That's true. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Like right now, he has all of this attention, but he also has to deliver. Are you familiar with Joji's background? No. No. Who's Joji? He's this guy that's pretty popular on, and he signed to like 88 Rising. No. So Joji's background is doing... He used to have a previous persona, like almost a, a comedic persona called Filthy Frank. Yeah. And Pink Guy. Yeah. Those so were both this, online aliases. He had a very interesting persona where it was just like a bunch of skits and he would just do like oh, fucked up shit. Yeah, I see. A shock humor show. Yes. I'm on his Wikipedia page. We're going to take the next few moments and Sharice is going to enter the world of Filthy Frank. Okay. As well as Joji afterwards. School sucks. Well, thank goodness there's a way to get out of school Just call an anonymous bomb threat. Allahu life hacks, if you know what I mean. Had too much to eat? Do you need to take your food on the go? Just put it in your pocket and you can eat it anywhere. You can even eat it in the park. Do you mind if I uh, take a little seat here? Yeah, yeah. I 
understand where you're going with this. This is actually pretty interesting. I think this could be similar to what happens with Ricky Desktop. We have no idea what Ricky Desktop's original music is going to sound like or what kind of vibe he's into. What I've just learned from Joji, what got him popular, I assume. I don't know how much transition there was. This current moment in time where he produces original music is that he was really embracing gimmicks, I guess. I mean, like that sounds super negative, but like just anything that would hit the wall. Yeah. Originally to see like what got traction. And this most recent music video is like the most normal thing I've ever seen versus like that first video where he was dressed in pink. You know, costume, video effects, clearly like slightly shock value background kind of thing. There's more shocking stuff, but yeah. No, I'm, I get it. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. But, I mean, I think that plays into the second article that you had shared, which was written by Kyle Cheka, and it's a newsletter titled Algo Cult Adapting to the Algorithm. And it's all about how creators and content adapt to the algorithm in order to find an audience. So in order to get a foothold, creators figure out how to make their content fit the native format of platforms, whether that's like a character limit or long videos on YouTube to get more ad insertion or just trying to decipher like the algorithmic black box and then creating content that's like tailor made for it. So with Ricky desktop, he's like broken down, like he revealed all his secrets, right? Like step one, two, three, four, five, six. This is how I figured out the TikTok structure and how I created beats to like get big in a way you could say Joji might've been trying to do the same thing with the filthy Frank TV show. How do I feel about this? Hmm. From a creator perspective, if you have aspirations, like if you have really big aspirations, then I can really see how figuring out the system and then playing it can work for you mm-hmm. to get that foothold, to get the attention. I, I actually want to take it one step back. Sure. The reason why I was so interested in this topic was that there's two things in terms of generating visibility and distribution, right? By, by breaking through or, or riding the stream of the algorithm. It's number one. I guess it's almost like optimizing your content for the algorithm. But number two, understanding almost the relationship between algorithm and culture. Because the algorithm is there to optimize for our attention. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And having said that, are the things that we as humans gravitate towards really that different? Because I think a lot of things are happening at a biological level, which is why we are so easy to manipulate Mm. from an algal perspective. So. What I'm trying to say with all of this is that humans themselves on a biological level haven't changed that much. It's just more so what are the different combinations of things that hit now more than they did maybe six months ago. So it's just understanding that. So everything that that this beat maker is doing, it's hitting on the right notes, but the notes themselves aren't really that big of a secret. Yeah. Right. It's like, hey, you know what? I want to be part of something. I want to, let's say, music dance. Like those are actually very sort of like foundational parts of culture. I would say, like, yeah, doesn't matter what culture you are, you you're into that. I don't think that's what I'm. That's not what I'm interested in saying, though. What I'm interested in saying is more like how much 
would someone as a creator or as just like someone who consumes content, are you willing to resist that? Resisting what the algorithm puts in front of you, resisting, as you're saying, kind of like these biological responses. But what I'm saying is that in reality, the algorithm is optimizing for biological responses. I know I'm saying, but I understand that. But it's like, I think we can resist that both as creators and as people consuming resi- content. I mean, you can resist it, but there's a chance that you'll create something that doesn't have relevance or is not something people care that much about because well, sure. it doesn't hit on whether it's emotional resonance or whatever. That's what I'm trying to say. No, I understand. Yeah. But like, I don't think that even if it's like this biologically deep thing, that doesn't mean that it should be the thing we prioritize the most or that oh, yeah, has totally. the most satisfaction. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think, you're full that's what i'm saying about ricky desktop is like yes he's making something where he's tailor made it for tiktok but he knows full well i'm just making this thing for tiktok this is not at heart the thing that i want yes. to be producing and yes. that i want people to love this is just my way to get to getting to do the thing i love we would agree that if you can win the tiktok algorithm challenge call it right yeah you have access to a massive lowest common denominator audience and i don't say that in a pejorative way it's just that like you're gonna touch on everybody and anybody yeah but there are different tierings to that right like i'm sure to go back to the joji example his music is a lot different and it's going to touch a different crowd that expects something else yeah right it's i mean you listen to joji you i imagine after this you'll probably go and you'll listen to more joji you might be i mean there's going to be a fallout right obviously yes you hit both Ricky Desktop and Joji as Filthy Frank managed to reach literally millions, like tens of millions of people based yeah. off of their numbers, right? About, uh, of their success. And then we don't know about Ricky yet, but we can see from Joji's, if we just look at these numbers that are external facing, going from 20 million views to 6 million views, that's a drop of attention in terms of like what? Well, they're, they're different timelines, right? One's like a three-year-old video and one's like a, few week old video well yes but i would also suspect that the the second video will cap out like just compared to the type of content yeah yeah but that's okay because they've enabled themselves to sustainably make what they want to make yeah but i think one thing that i'm interested in we've been talking a lot about creators right like both ricky desktop joji and, and so many other people out there who are trying to like break the tiktok challenge the youtube challenge they are creators who have some kind of dream for themselves and making music and making videos. But I think my interest most often lies with actually the consumers who watch videos on YouTube, who are making TikTok dances. And it's not that I want like some kind of landslide change where they don't use the popular viral beat to make a dance and they don't watch the funny video, but it would be interesting if there was more awareness of how the algorithm is serving you these things. And I would want to see resistance sounds really strong, but. But I think regardless, like you pandering to the algorithm is something you don't need to do, but what you lose is the opportunity to have access to a massive audience. No, no, but I'm talking about someone who just watches. I'm talking about the person who's watching videos. Yes. Who's dancing to the beat, who doesn't have a lot of views, whose goal in life is not to be like making music and videos. Like I'm thinking about that person 
who's on this receiving end of content being created by creators who are trying to like break the algorithmic challenge. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I under, I respect creators for like working within the system because obviously as an individual beat maker, you're not going to change the way TikTok works. But I think actually if everyone who was using TikTok and dancing was more aware of the way that like beats and dances are, but maybe they don't care. Maybe they don't care that all of the songs and dances that they listen to and watch and do are, you know, tailored to fulfill that, you know, base biological need. I don't need. see them caring that much. I guess I'm saying that I wish they did care more. Yeah. Well, it's maybe just like a difference in the medium, right? Like it's not that intelligent, thought-provoking things don't happen. It's yeah. just, it's not going to be, it won't necessarily be on TikTok. I had an anecdote that I thought of because the end of Kyle Chaka's newsletter, he writes, adaptation is a self-reinforcing cycle because the more creators match the established format, the more that format gets entrenched, the more the algorithm only spreads stuff that is similar to it and the more users come to expect it. So I like this because it does, it talks about both creators and users and how you know there's that interplay. And the anecdote I wanted to mention is that my partner has been super disenchanted with Instagram for, I don't know, years now, like three years. And he's a photographer. So he understands that being on Instagram could be to his service in terms of posting his work and sharing the jobs that he's on, et cetera. Right. But he finds it to be boring. I think that's the word he would want me to pick. He finds it to be boring to be on Instagram and just seeing everyone share their work and just continuously feels like looking at people's portfolios and like CVs in action. And so he doesn't want to participate mm-hmm. in that. And it's not that he like, yeah, he, he's not like judging these people for doing it. He just finds like the landscape is all the same thing. And so most recently he's been sharing photos taken from a video game that he played because he felt like, this is something different from everything else I see. And I just want to do this one tiny thing where, I mean, again, like who knows how much attention it gets, but like posting something that I know is different. Yeah. And that's the one thing is that despite the algorithm itself optimizing for a certain thing, we as humans have proven that we can also get bored and cycles exist. Fashion cycles exist for a reason. So there is the only thing that's certain is uncertainty. You know what I mean? Like you're always going to change like what's popular now is not going to be popular in six months. And I'm sure if you looked under the hood of Facebook, what they optimized for five years ago versus last year versus next year will be different. I think that's encouraging. No. Encouraging to me. I mean, ultimately, like I said, the reason why I brought up that point about optimizing for audience, which is because algorithms are a byproduct of needing to sort through a ton of content or data yeah there's still other ways it's just that you have to forego access to audience so if you do in fact bring your content to a newsletter or behind a paywall like yes you don't have to play the algorithmic game but you lose something but you might preserve your creative purity i don't really like the phrase creative purity 
As I, I don't know think if that at a mass scale, you have to give something up if your goal is to reach the masses. And I yeah, I, but I don't like the word purity because it makes it seem distinctly like that is better than playing to the algorithm. And I don't think I necessarily want to say that because of understanding the way well, the landscape is. I don't know if it's helpful if I contextualize what I mean by purity. And what I mean by that is like my ability to put something out in the world without worrying if people care about mm. it and if it plays nicely with the algorithm. Mm -hmm. It's almost more artful in a way. But I, I did. You did, know you, did we talk about this last week where we were talking about how elusive it is to act disconnected from capitalism? Well, we did talk about. I can't remember if we talked yeah. about it on the mic or not. Yeah. But Eugene and I had a conversation about how difficult it is to make any kind of actions without considering capitalism, essentially, or considering our connection to other people. And I think that's what I understand creative purity to mean. I just don't, I think the word purity makes it sound like this is inherently better. Um, and I don't know if I want to position it as inherently better, but it is that trying to operate independently of all of these other algorithmic monetary factors. I mean, it just takes a very strong understanding of your place to be able to disconnect. I think that's a good place to wrap up. If you are interested in hearing more about making, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makin.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash makin. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at charisse at makin.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or eugene at makin.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. -E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.